Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to Professor Andrew Durack, the Chief Executive and Founder at Durack, a quantum computing company based at the University of New South Wales. Professor Durack is a Professor at the School of Engineering at UNSW and an ARC Laureate Fellow. Welcome. Thanks very much, James. Pleased to be with you. So I just stumbled over all of the various pieces of your portfolio of responsibilities. Maybe we can just talk through that. You're the CEO of a star quantum company. You're a teaching and research professor at the university, but you're also a research professor laureate through the Research Council. How do those things fit together? Yeah, so I was awarded a laureate fellowship from the Australian Research Council in late 2019. And what that means is that I actually don't teach. I focus purely on research for the period of that fellowship, which runs for another year and a half. Normally, however, I would be a teaching and research professor. However, we've negotiated an arrangement with the university whereby the university is actually one of the shareholders in our company. And so they effectively donate my time to manage the research programs of Dirac and also to be CEO of Dirac. So effectively, all of my time is dedicated to the company's programs, be it commercial or the research management of the company. Okay, and Dirac was founded when? Yeah, so we launched in May 2022. So we're coming up to about a year and a half into our journey. Okay, so give us the snapshot. Now, I know that University of New South Wales has longevity of experience in quantum, but very specifically in silicon-based quantum systems. Just talk us through what Dirac's doing and how it differs from other ventures. So it's useful to give a bit of history, and that is that the UNSW has been involved in quantum computing since the late 1990s. So I actually joined in 1994 and then helped to set up the Centre for Quantum Computing, which was founded in 2000 by the guy who recruited me, Professor Bob Clark. So that centre has now evolved into the Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computing and Communication Technology, now led by Professor Michelle Simmons, and it's been effectively in operation for 24 years. So very long history of work in quantum computing, and in particular, there's the focus at UNSW in quantum computing has been on silicon-based quantum computing. Now, originally, the motivation for that was one of the postdoctoral researchers in Bob Clark's team, who I worked alongside, a guy called Bruce Kane, invented the idea of using single phosphorus atoms in silicon as quantum bits. And uh, it was actually that concept originally published in Nature in 1998, which kicked off the enthusiasm and the idea of doing silicon-based quantum computing as part of the what has now become the National Centre for Quantum Computing. So, in fact, I worked on devices and experiments related to those single-atom qubits for a long time. In fact, together with a colleague of mine now, Professor Andrea Morello, we demonstrated the first single-atom qubits 
in 2012 and 2013. But around about that time, I was exploring an alternative approach to making silicon qubits. And rather than using atom scale technology, I worked out a way to modify standard transistors of the type that we have in all of our microprocessor chips, in our mobile phones, in our laptops, all of our computers, data centers. The technology is generally known as CMOS technology, stands for Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor Technology, and it describes the type of transistors that make up all of our modern integrated circuits and processor chips. And I showed how to modify, or myself and my team showed how to modify the basic transistor known as a MOSFET transistor and operate that as a quantum bit. So we patented that and we published the first results on that demonstration in 2014. And from 2014, over the following seven or eight years, built up a whole range of intellectual property and significant number of papers in nature journals demonstrating this capability. And it was the capability there that then allowed me to raise the funding to set up Dirac. And Dirac is now focused purely on the development of this CMOS-based quantum processor approach where we can use standard chip-making, chip foundries as they're called, to make processor chips, ultimately with millions of quantum bits integrated on a single chip and made using standard manufacturing. So this is a really big advantage of the technology that Dirac's focused on and why we've been able to attract private investment and, and also a lot of interest from governments and so on. So just before we get into, and I'm very interested in this, into some of the specifics of the technology. So you're about a year old or a bit more than a year old as Dirac. So tell me about your investors. It sounds like the advantage that you have, it's significantly less expensive to use existing technology than to try and build a whole new industry, as it were, to produce the processes. So talk me through the money raising and uh, and where are we up to on the commercial side? Yeah, I will. I mean, I, I will make one comment about you say it can be a whole lot less expensive, but in the sense that we're not having to reinvent a new manufacturing process. But it is worth noting that we do need to utilize some of the most advanced manufacturing in the chip industry. And that is not necessarily a cheap process. So the big advantage that we have from a commercial perspective and a technology perspective is that we do not have to reinvent a manufacturing technology. It exists. And it allows us to make ultimately devices up into the millions, which is something that most of the other quantum bit technologies, quantum computing technologies, are struggling to do, are really struggling to do. I just thought I'd correct that. Now, coming back to our investors, I'd been very interested in commercializing this technology for a very long time. Um, in fact, I, I was involved in working with the university to file our patents as far as 20 years ago and indeed in setting up an IP holding company called uh, QCore back in 2003. So I'd been talking to investors for a very long time, but the opportunity to set up Dirac came through meeting investors in a company called Electus Capital. They're part of a broader group called ICM Limited. And Electus are a company that they've got investments all around the world, but they have particular investments in the UK, in Australia, in Singapore in particular. And for example, they were one of the early investors in Afterpay in Australia. They do quite a bit of investment in the fintech area and so on. So they were interested in quantum computing and they were looking at the different capabilities around the world. And they actually 
really liked what we were doing because they'd seen all of the work we published in Nature. I'd been doing quite a lot of media to explain our research with the focus of ultimately commercializing it. And so they approached me. At the time, I was actually working within the company Silicon Quantum Computing, which is a company that Michelle Simmons founded, because all of the intellectual property and concepts in quantum computing were effectively operated and managed through that company. But with the funding from Electus, we were able to effectively buy the IP that I developed and that was sitting with SQC and to separate it completely from SQC to create a new company, Dirac. So um, to some extent, we benefited from the uh, investments that went into SQC initially, but we effectively then bought the IP as well as some of the equipment that had been purchased through SQC for my program in CMOS qubits. And so now SQC is purely focused on its single atom approach. That's the technology that Michelle Simmons works on, whereas Dirac is purely focused on the CMOS approach, the you know modified transistor approach that can be made in chip foundries. Just going to say, do you see yourself in competition with silicon quantum computing? You may not be collaborating, but is it a competitive thing or competitive technology landscape? How do you describe that? Well, we're competing with all companies that are trying to make quantum computers, and SQC is one of them. So, yes, we are competitors, but what I would say is that we're friendly competitors. There are areas where we've put in, for example, mutual funding proposals together where the technology is beneficial for both of us. But, yeah, I mean, of course, we are competitors, but, you know, we have a very good relationship. I wanted to get to on the finances. Is it a public number, how much money you've raised? No, we haven't announced that. And we are currently in a new funding round at the moment. And, you know, hopefully maybe in the next six months or so, we might be able to say more about that. Okay. And I think you've got some funding from, have I got this right, US Army Research Office, in addition to uh, UNSW? That's right. Yeah. So, in fact, the US Army Research Office has been funding research in our groups at UNSW since as early as 1999. So very, very long-term investments, first in the single atom approach, but more recently in my approach based on CMOS modified transistors. So it's a long-standing relationship, very significant funding, typically over 1 million US dollars per annum for our programs. I have a recent program in which we're also collaborating with another Australian company, Q-Control, and that's for around 5 million US dollars. The grant itself goes to the University of New South Wales, but because the university is a shareholder in the company, it it effectively provides all of the resulting research and indeed IP to the company. Okay, so tell me, in that commercialization journey, for want of a better term, like where is Dirac up to? You're decades long into the development. How far from a commercial product do you think you are? Yeah, so at the moment, we're operating devices with up to four operating quantum bits in our labs in Sydney. We have publicly on our website, you can see that by the end of the first phase of our development, which is the three-year phase, so we're about halfway through. So in the next 18 to 24 months, we're intending to be at the nine or 10 qubit level based on devices that we make locally in Sydney, in fact, on campus at the University of New South Wales. We use the fabrication facilities provided by 
the Australian National Fabrication Facility, which is an Australian government and state government and university-funded facility open to all publicly and privately funded researchers. So in the next two years, we tend to be at the 9 to 10 qubit level. But more importantly, we have developed relationships with chip foundries outside Australia. I should note that there's no chip-making facilities at the feature size, which is below 30 nanometers or so, that we require for making our qubits. There are no chip-making facilities, CMOS facilities on Australian soil capable of doing that. And so we have developed partnerships with foundries in the United States and in Europe um, in order to make qubit chips for us. And so within our first phase, we are intending and we're well on track to demonstrate qubits made in chip foundries at the one and two qubit level and demonstrate that they work well. In the technical jargon, it means that they operate with high fidelity, fidelities above 99% accuracy. So that's what's happening just in the next 18 months to two years. In the three years following that, we're intending on ramping up the number of qubits very, very significantly. Now, we're actually not publicly announcing the numbers that we're targeting, but I can say that it is in the thousands. I won't say exactly how many, but it will allow us within the next five years to be able to address problems of commercial relevance. And we certainly intend to be selling access to our quantum computing systems to customers during that period. So we're certainly intending on generating revenue through sale of access to our quantum computing systems within the next five years. Now, it's important to understand when you hear about quantum computing, you hear about a lot of very, very exciting applications, and they are very exciting applications. I mean, some of the most exciting are areas such as designing new molecules, in particular designing new pharmaceutical molecules that can be used for attacking pathogens, bacteria, and so on, that can be designed in a bespoke way. Currently, that can't be done with existing supercomputers, but all the evidence points to the fact that quantum computers will be able to do this, and that will be a major outcome for humanity once that becomes available. I've just named one specific example. There's a whole bunch of applications, for example, in fixation of nitrogen, potentially also removing carbon from the atmosphere, a whole load of ranges that can have an impact on climate change and climate effects. There's also significant applications in financial modeling and so on. But all of those applications are going to require what's called a fault-tolerant or an error-corrected quantum computer. You may have heard of this. And that will require many millions of qubits. And at Dirac, we're very firmly focused on getting to that many million qubit level faster than any of our competitors. And we believe that we'll be able to do that because we can leverage off the replication abilities that you have in standard integrated circuits. We know that we can go to millions of qubits using standard manufacturing, and we are looking to get to that level within a decade from now. But as I mentioned, we're looking at solving commercially relevant problems within the next five years, and but within the next 10 years, we're looking to have fault-tolerant capabilities with our qubits. That's uh, incredible, really. Let me just ask you, as an aside, how's it been for you, this CEO journey, jumping from PhD in, from Cambridge back to Australia into a very heavily research-oriented role 
and now into what sounds very commercial, albeit in a technical area. Well, firstly, I enjoy it enormously. I enjoy the role of CEO of Dirac and I love managing our team and identifying our commercial pathways and our commercial strategies. And it actually hasn't been as big a transition as you might think because I've been very interested in ultimately commercializing silicon quantum computing, as I mentioned, for over 20 years. I was involved in setting up the first IP holding company at UNSW back in 2003. And another thing is that the funding that we received from the US government is very mission-oriented. It's very much milestone-driven. My research programs that I've led have always been very much directed at delivering particular milestones. It hasn't just been pure discovery research, which is you know typical of many academics. And so as a result, it's quite a natural thing to set milestones and targets that we need for our commercial operations. Furthermore, I've led a significantly large group for quite a long time, for almost a decade. And so I'm quite used to managing large groups of researchers and, and assembling teams and structuring teams appropriately. I suppose that the financial side, learning about the ins and outs of venture capital and, and what VCs are looking for and so on, has been a, a learning curve for me over the past few years. But I've actually had amazing support from our foundation investor, Electus Capital, who are very experienced at building companies, and they've given me great guidance. And as you might have gathered, I like talking, I like communicating, and so I find it quite natural to speak to investors. Talk to me about some of the government supports. Obviously, the ARC and the institutional support you've had through the university, all of those things have built the company to the point that it's at now, I suppose, with that injection of capital. When we look at other supports that might be available, whether it's an R&D tax incentive or if it's the National Reconstruction Fund, these sort of support mechanisms, what looks interesting out there for a company like Dirac or are you trying to sort of keep outside of that government sphere and just get more directly through the venture capital side of financing? So we are certainly looking to tap both government funding as well as private funding. I'd make the point that the development of the classical computing industry was enormously subsidized by investments from governments, either from military agencies in the US or government support generally. And indeed, if you look at the development of computer industries all around the world, the classic being in Taiwan with TSMC, you know, that was massively government subsidized. So I think that it's quite a natural thing for government support. And we see around the world at the moment that most developed countries are now making very, very big investments in quantum computing in the many billions of dollars. And I'm very pleased to see that Australia is now moving into that direction as well. Let me say a few more words about the government investments and where we've benefited and where we're looking to take opportunities or where we already have. So firstly, I just really do want to highlight the importance of an organisation like the Australian Research Council. The ARC really has been the feeder for so much funding that has allowed the research that has ultimately led to Dirac. As I mentioned, I'm an ARC Laureate Fellow. I received quite a bit of funding through that program that allows me to employ research stuff. So that core fundamental research funding is crucial. Now, moving more to the commercial side, we very recently, just in the last few months, received a $3 million grant through the Department of Industries CRC Projects Program. 
that's the program where we're working together with a number of partners, in particular a Sydney-based chip design company called Perceptia. And so that's been a very, very important project that's going to help us to move forward our development of classical electronics to control our qubit chips, which is a core part of our mission. We also are very fortunate to get a further $3 million funding from a separate program, a New South Wales state government program. This is a program called the Quantum Computing Commercialization Fund that funded a couple of different companies. So Dirac obtained funding and we're partnering in that again with Perceptia, but also with Q-Control, which is a generalized quantum computing company also based here in Sydney, led by Mike Beardshaw. So we actually partner on both of those grants with Q-Control. And in fact, we also partner with Q-Control in our work from our US Army research grant. So those are important, both state government and federal government grants that we've benefited from. And we've also very much got our eye on the Commonwealth government's new National Reconstruction Fund that's been established by the Department of Industry. And, you know, Ed Husick's obviously been the person who's championed that. And I think it's a visionary investment by the Commonwealth government to set that up. Of the 15 billion, 1 billion is dedicated to so-called critical technologies, of which quantum technologies have been identified as one. And uh, we're certainly looking at that. It's still in the process of being set up and to get its uh, investment team in place. But I think that that could be a great opportunity for us to potentially look at investment from that as well. And of course, Australia's chief scientist, Cathy Foley, has been central to setting up the national quantum strategy. And there's a variety of different potential funding streams that are being looked at through that. We're hopeful of being able to access at the appropriate time. So my view is that we've been fortunate to get ongoing funding from a long time through more traditional academic sources like the Australian Research Council, but there are also the examples I've given already and future ones, such as the National Reconstruction Fund, that can be very important for companies like Dirac. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to watch. And obviously, we'll be watching you guys because I don't know, everyone's been sort of looking around nervously now because it does seem like there is this particularly fertile patch in Australia in quantum. But uh, we've been here before, I think, with other technologies. Photovoltaics is held up as the famous one that uh, ended up being the one that got away. So how hopeful are you or, or do you think it's likely that Australia can build a domestic quantum industry rather than a domestic niche expertise that is then taken offshore by others? I think we are exceptionally well-placed to build a very strong, major quantum industry in Australia. I mean, I'm convinced of it. And the reason for that is because we got in so early with our R&D. So as I mentioned, Bob Clark set up the Centre for Quantum Computing which was you know, headquartered at UNSW, but had partners originally at the University of Melbourne and University of Queensland. Now there are seven partners, including Griffith University and others. So that was in 2000, right? This is 24 years ago, Australia set up a national centre for quantum computing. Now, so much talent has been generated by that that continues to be in Australia, but has also gone around the world, right? So there's a massive quantum computing company in Silicon Valley called SciQuantum, led by Jeremy O'Brien. Jeremy O'Brien did his PhD with Bob Clark and myself at UNSW in the late 1990s, right? Another kind of uh, alumni of the centre is David Riley, another 
former PhD student of Bob Clark and myself, David now heads up Microsoft Quantum's effort in Sydney. We have some of the world's best minds in quantum algorithm development at UTS in Sydney. Also, great capabilities of people in Melbourne as well. I've already mentioned Q-Control. Mike Beersook, who's the CEO of Q-Control, Mike came out to do some PhD research while I was at Harvard. He came and visited UNSW and did work with Bob Clark and myself. I think it was back in 2005. So point I'm making is that Australia got in very early. In fact, I'm pretty certain that the Centre for Quantum Computing in Australia in 2000 was the world's first national centre. So we got in early, we built up a massive cohort of talent, and that talent continues to be generated. So at UNSW, we now have a Bachelor of Engineering program in quantum engineering that my colleague Andrea Morello and others set up. So we're generating massive amount of talent, and the world looks to Australia to generate talent. So the trick, of course, is to convert that talent and expertise and IP into commercial ventures. And so I think that the Commonwealth Government and the New South Wales State Government are very cognizant of the opportunity. They're doing their best to make the right investments in difficult economic times. And I think provided those investments are sensibly and pragmatically made and at sufficient level to take the opportunity, together with the attraction of international venture capital, which we've already seen good examples of with Q-Control and indeed Dirac is in the process of doing that as well. I think we're exceptionally well positioned to be an absolute world leader in quantum technology. What about on the Silicon Foundry side? Does your work and the opportunities that you've just described, does this make a greater case for subsidising some kind of foundry operation in this country or does it still not make sense? Okay, so my answer is yes and no. (laughs) And it's not simple, so just bear with me. So firstly, our qubit technology requires feature sizes in the let's say, the 10 to 30 nanometer range. That is high-end, so-called tier one chip foundry manufacture. And those chip foundries, to build them on a greenfield site, you're starting at around 20 billion US dollars. Okay, so it's a very major investment. At the moment, really, the only places in the world that have that capability are the United States, Taiwan, and Korea, and some in Europe. China, for example, doesn't have the capability to do that level of advanced chip production. You may be aware that the US Chips Act is very much trying to ensure that the US enhances that capability. So I think it's obviously very expensive to go at the tier one level. However, although Dirac needs access to those chips and we've got great relationships, fortunately, Australia is, you know, has strong relationships with countries like the United States through AUKUS, but also great relationships with Europe as well. We've got the ability to access chips from those foundries. There's actually a lot of quantum computing chips that are required that aren't at that extreme level. For example, a lot of the control electronics. So when you make a quantum computer, you don't just need the qubits. You also need a lot of electronics to control those qubits. And uh, in fact, CMOS chips are the best way to do that in our view. And that can be done with chips that aren't quite at that tier one level. And those sort of foundries can be made more at the 1 billion level rather than the 20 billion level. 
And I think there is a place for that sort of a capability in Australia. And in fact, my personal view is that from a defence and strategic perspective, there is a strong argument for why Australia would benefit from having that level of chip foundry capability. And indeed, in New South Wales at the moment, the New South Wales government has funded an organisation called the Semiconductor Sector Service Bureau. And one of its aims, besides generally creating an ecosystem for chip designers and to provide them support and access to chip foundries overseas, they're also exploring what can be done in ultimately building up some foundry capability in Australia. So I just want to be clear that I do think that there is a space for foundry capabilities in Australia, but probably not initially at that tier one level of sub 20 nanometers and below. In the longer term, though, if we do set up, let's say, the 65 nanometer node or the 90 nanometer node, which can provide a lot of capabilities, not just to quantum technologies, but also to a whole range of high-tech and defense capabilities, once you have that capability, you can then start to look at going to the next stage. It then can make sense. One thing to bear in mind is that Australia is one of the safest, most stable countries in the world politically and economically. And there's actually very strong arguments why major corporations may choose to put their tier one foundries in Australia in the longer term. It would be an incredibly ambitious undertaking, even for the lower tier foundries, I would have thought. Even I think TSMC setting up in Arizona has not been a straightforward exercise in the US. Well, that is tier one. That is tier one. Yeah, yes, that's right. You know, in the US, which has access to a lot more engineers than we probably do here, but it's fascinating to hear your thoughts on that. And we'll be watching. I know that there's a lot of people who've been talking for a long time about a foundry in this country, but it seems to have gathered a little bit of momentum now, so we'll keep watching that. James, can I just comment on that and just make a note that while I I do see benefits, certainly for Dirac, if such capabilities were in the country, it's not a requirement for our company. One thing that not many people appreciate is that Apple get all their chips made at TSMC, right? Apple is essentially a fabulous company. They do the design of the chips, they assemble the components, their chips are made offshore, and effectively that's the model that Dirac has. So while I think that there would be long-term benefits over the next decade or two decades to build up some local capacity in that area, it's certainly not something that we are reliant on. Okay, look, I'm going to start winding up now. Thank you, Andrew. Dirac, fascinating conversation about Dirac. There's a couple of things. Firstly, I want to ask you about Paul Dirac. Oh, yes. Your company is named after this very famous... Indeed. Yeah, just talk us through that. Yeah, so the three people most important in developing quantum mechanics were Paul Dirac, Erwin Schrodinger, and Werner Heisenberg. And they all essentially independently, although to some extent knowing a little bit about each other, came up with different mathematical formulations for quantum mechanics in the 1920s. So Paul Dirac was based in Cambridge in the UK from Swiss parents. He was born in Bristol, actually. So the pronunciation of his name should be Paul Dirac, I guess. But he's the least famous, actually. People have heard of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, right, which is very famous. And most people who know anything about quantum have heard of Schrodinger's cat, which is the concept of the cat that's alive and dead. Less people know about Paul Dirac, but Paul Dirac 
jointly got the Nobel Prize with Schrodinger in 1933. And Dirac developed, in my personal view, the most elegant mathematical description of quantum theory. He devised it from just five postulates, and all of quantum mechanics, which is effectively all of the description of, of nature, is described by Dirac's principles. Interestingly, later on, he also combined quantum theory with the theory of special relativity, Einstein's theory, to formulate a thing called the Dirac equation. And the Dirac equation predicted the existence of antiparticles and also the prediction of spin, the spin of particles, which is their angular momentum, which gives them a tiny magnetic moment. He predicted the existence of antiparticles before they'd even been discovered. So Paul Dirac was an absolute giant of the quantum world. And so that's why we chose the name Dirac. And also because from the Dirac equation naturally comes concept of spin of the electron. And we use the spin of the electron to encode our quantum bits. All right. I think we're going to leave it on that wonderful story. Thank you very much, Professor Andrew Dirac. That was a fascinating conversation. We'll be watching. This is a very exciting moment in time, I think, for Australian industry, but certainly in the quantum sector. Thanks very much, James. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com and stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.